Hello and welcome to the Amnesty International podcast for December 2009. This month, we talked to the inspirational Gertrude Hambria, head of one of Zimbabwe's largest trade unions. She talks about life fighting for workers' rights in the face of violence and corruption. We then have a report on the fight for justice in Bhopal, 25 years after one of the world's worst industrial accidents for which no one has been held accountable, compensation has been inadequate, and cleanup of the toxic site has still not taken place. We finish on the inspiring words. In every life, there are determining moments that all your values and beliefs are going to be tested. And it depends on you how to pass that test. These come from a compelling interview with Dr. Arash Hajazi, a witness to the post-election violence in Iran. He talks about the events of June the 20th, which led to the shooting of Nedaga Sultan, an Iranian protester whose final moments were controversially broadcast around the world. But first, the Amnesty International News Roundup. Two male Azerbaijani activists and bloggers, Emin Abdulyev and Adnan Hajizad, were sentenced to two and a half years and two years respectively in an unfair trial in November. Amnesty International believes the charges against them were fabricated and they have been imprisoned solely for exercising their right to freedom of expression. During a recent mission to Guinea, Amnesty International found that Guinea's security forces are continuing to arrest and harass activists following a massacre during the crackdown of a political protest on September the 28th this year. Amnesty International uncovered fresh evidence about disturbing levels of sexual violence and found cases of over 40 people who attended the rally and whose whereabouts are still unknown. Amnesty International has called for an independent investigation in Honduras into human rights abuses carried out since the overthrow of the government in June this year. An Amnesty International delegation visited Honduras during the November elections to monitor for human rights abuses. The organisation has called for the perpetrators to be brought to justice and for the victims to receive reparations. November also saw a vote in Switzerland to introduce a ban on the construction of minarets into their constitution. The ban violates the freedom of religion of Muslims living in the country. It also violates the prohibition of discrimination on the grounds of religious belief, as set out in several international human rights agreements that Switzerland is a party to. More women than men are the victims of poverty, violence and human rights violations. Women earn only 10% of the world's income, but they do two-thirds of the world's work. They produce up to 80% of the food in developing countries, but own only 1% of the land. An Amnesty International report, The Gender Trap, was published to coincide with the launch of 16 days of activism against violence against women, leading up to Human Rights Day on December 10th. Amnesty International's Katie Pownall interviewed a number of women who put their lives on the line in the defence of human rights. One of these women was Gertrude Hambria, a leading Zimbabwean trade unionist and human rights defender. She explained how the recent land reforms in Zimbabwe have resulted in many farm workers being evicted from their homes, losing their livelihoods and often subjected to harassment and intimidation. Gertrude, hello and welcome to our podcast. It's lovely to have you here. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm happy to be part of Amnesty. The reason we're talking today is particularly about women as human rights defenders. What challenges do you think women face, particularly in Zimbabwe, given the current situation? Right now, most of the farms are not in production. So even if uh, the husband has lost work, the wife might want um, 
to be engaged, but the, the new farmers are not employing. They are not. They are, they, are, they are not engaged in any production. So, the union is trying to engage the women and its members to do some livelihood projects, such as gardening, buying and selling, all those things which which they can get so that they can earn a living and be able to buy children food for their children. But under very difficult weather, we are now in a dollarized dollarized economy. And having access to that dollar, if you are not employed, is very, very difficult. It's very, very tough. Mm -hmm. The agriculture sector has become the battlefield of two political giants. And this is a male-dominated uh, sector where you go out there into the field, you meet with perpetrators of violence, you meet with your constituency, you, they look upon you to bring change and also assist them in speaking up because... Uh, I represent the most vulnerable group in society, and these are farm workers who migrated a long time ago from neighboring countries, and they have not been in a position to speak for themselves, but right now we are engaging to say, speak out, we have a voice, you can be heard. What role do you think women have in defending human rights? Well, um, I think the women, like I said, they play a big role in uh, defending uh, human and workers' rights in their constituencies uh, by using the non-violence approach. We have done a lot of campaigns, we have done a lot of educational activities raising awareness so that women could be able to speak for themselves on the problems of, of which are affecting them on day-to-day -day basis. And as a result also, to the extent of participating or exercising their democratic rights, I think we have done a lot and they play a big role because most of the time, as I have said, that uh, we do have a high rate of unemployment and most of the time the women are busy at home and rather than sitting by the under a tree gossiping, we have now engaged people to educate each other about bringing change in the country. Do you think you, um, your role would be any easier if you were a man? I, I, I don't think so because sometimes men easily give up. Like in my organization, my, my officers will tell me that, Mother, I think we need to revenge. And then I'll say, cool down, cool down. They don't have, they want to retaliate easily rather than approaching um, issues at a, with, a, at, at a different, uh, with a different uh, uh, area. I, I mean, I, I've been brought up and trained on the nonviolent approach and uh, that has worked very well in my organization. We are in a setup whereby if we wanted to retaliate, I think a lot of uh, blood would have been shed. But uh, I, think, I think we are doing very well. On the night of the 2nd of December 1984, thousands of tonnes of deadly gas leaked from a pesticide factory in Bhopal, owned and operated by American multinational Union Carbide Corporation. More than half a million people were exposed to the toxic gas. Over 23,000 people have died, and as a result of this exposure, 25 years after the gas leak, more than 100,000 people remain ill. In this short report, we hear from some of the victims and from veteran campaigner for human rights in Bhopal, Sathyu Sarangi. Hundreds died in their sleep, many more as they ran choking from their meagre homes, trying to escape the unseen killer. Silently, insidiously, the fumes swept through the densely populated slums that surround the Union Carbide plant. The bodies of mothers and their children littered the dusty streets. 
Some still don't even know what caused this disaster. But such is the scale that there wasn't even enough firewood to light all the funeral pyres. It's been 25 years since the people of Bhopal woke to what's been described as chemical Hiroshima. But Bhopal is not just a human rights tragedy of the last century. It's a human rights travesty today. The disaster and its aftermath continue to raise fundamental questions about the way that giant corporations operate. He can't see through the eyes for days. He lay like that and after that my husband went mad because of the gas. He doused himself with kerosene and set fire. He died leaving me and my children behind. My life was destroyed. Today I can barely walk. I'm always short of breath. I'm surviving on medicines. There is nobody to earn and feed me. Since the gas episode, I've been keeping ill. I cannot walk. I'm very sick. We get treatment, but it's of no use. I get admitted in hospital. They admit me here for a while, but there is no long-term solution. Tens of thousands of survivors like Mohammed are still facing severe health problems or social exclusion. Doctors say that even those people born after the disaster can suffer stunted growth or psychiatric disorders. When Union Carbide abandoned the plant after the disaster, it left behind about 10,000 tons of chemical waste buried in and around the factory. And that waste has leached into the groundwater, contaminating the local groundwater up to over three kilometers. And a population of about 25,000 that lives near the factory has been drinking this water that is contaminated with um, chlorobenzenes and phenyls and aldehydes and very uh, carcinogenic and birth defect causing chemicals. Bhopal is a human rights catastrophe and one for which nobody has ever been held to account, although it happened 25 years ago. There are a number of reasons for this, but one of the key reasons is that a company is involved. This is significantly added to the legal complexity. There are two jurisdictions involved, which has been an additional hurdle. The US, where the company is headquartered, and Bhopal in India, where the incident occurred. Effectively, in this case, the law has protected the corporation and made it far more difficult for victims to get justice. The response of the government has been the same, which is treating the victims as expendable people, people who can be sacrificed in the name of progress, and people who do not matter. And our, mostly our, our fight has been to make the government take note of the people's suffering and do something about it. The government of India has failed here, failed to ensure justice is done for the victims, failed to hold anyone to account and failed even to ensure that the site is cleaned up. Recent moves by the government of India to put in place an empowered commission are welcomed, but much, much more needs to be done and it needs to be done swiftly. Please go online to amnesty.org where you can read more and take action to help the residents of Bhopal. And now, Iran, where six months after the disputed presidential elections, human rights violations are as bad as at any time in the past 20 years. As Amnesty International published a report on the aftermath of June's elections, we spoke to Dr. Arash Hajazi, who tried to save the life of Neda Aga Sultan, a protester shot dead by Iranian security forces in June. The horrific event was captured in a shaky piece of video, and her last moments were unforgettably broadcast around the world. On uh, June 20, 2009, 
uh, a day after the Supreme Leader of Iran declared officially that, that no more demonstrations were allowed in protesting against the election results. Uh, a huge crowd were gathering in one of the main squares of Tehran in protest to show how peaceful they were, how they just wanted a recount uh, and they weren't expected, they were not going to uh, try to overthrow the regime or the state, they just wanted to get some clarification regarding the elections. They met the police, they were dispersed by the police, and about 20 people moved in the small alley that leads to where our office is located. I asked my colleagues to join me and let's, I told them, let's go back. And by the end of that alley, uh, well, Neda Aga Sultan was among those 20 people who were uh, moving in that alley besides us. And I had noticed her back because she was there, she, she was active, she was shouting, so I noticed her. And in the end of the alley where people was just uh, waited, you know, a little bit confused, they didn't know where to go, what to do exactly. In that confusion, we hear the blast, and then I noticed that uh, blood was gushing out of uh, this lady's chest, and I realized that she was shot. <laughs> So I rushed towards her, to, uh, trying to help her. Unfortunately, I wasn't successful. She died in less than a minute. I knew there would be violence, but I never believed that it could be to this extent. You know, I thought that they would start beating people, they would start arresting people, but shooting them in the chest, shooting civil uh, civilians, unarmed civilians in the chest, in the eye, in the head, I, I could have never imagined that. I left Iran about four days after this incident and in the beginning I wasn't intending to talk about it because I thought the film was out, everybody knew about it and the government would react accordingly to find, uh, you know, to somehow respond to it, punish the persons involved, those responsible or at least investigate the case. But well, uh, when I left Iran, I realized that that wasn't the case, and the government was uh, denying the whole thing. What concerns me a lot is the situation in Iran at the moment. All those people who have died, I don't want those bloods to have been shed in vain. I don't want uh, those people who are still in prison, you know, those long-term imprisonment sentences, all those uh, tortures, all those rapes, uh, and how long will that go on? Uh, I don't, you know, unless some concrete, st uh, concrete steps are taken, this will go on for a while. And a lot of, you know, a lot of blood will be involved and we don't want that. And I don't think the world wants people of Iran to just give up their, their right to protest. That's an essential right, an essential human right. and. Uh, does the world want that? If not, they need to take, take some steps to support the people. The full report on post-election human rights abuses in Iran is available on our website. We're at the end of the show, but before the end of the year, we'll be podcasting the impassioned recording of a meeting with Martina Correa, who has fought tirelessly for the release of her brother from death row in the USA. Troy Davis has been on death row since 1991 for the murder of a policeman which he has continually said he did not commit. 
If you don't know the full story or want to know how his appeal is progressing, we'll be podcasting the whole recording soon. Thank you for listening to the Amnesty International podcast. Amnesty International.